Hello. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Very. Here you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Hey there, Conscious Combat Soul. What, you? Yes, I'm talking to you. If you listen to this podcast, then you are a human being who loves combat and wants to be conscious about the way that you're doing it. You're interested in being more trauma-informed, more inclusive, and more ethical in the way that you teach and participate in martial arts and combat sports. And that's why I would like to invite you specifically to join our new group, the Conscious Combat Club. We're on Facebook, and there's an emailing newsletter that you can sign up for, the details for both of which are in the show notes here. But now, let's get to today's episode. Hello, friend. Thank you for joining in and listening to this episode with Martina. I wanted to pop on and share a little bit of context before you start listening to the episode. This is a storytelling journey where Martina is going to chronicle her experiences with the different intersections of oppression, particularly as they relate to an American and a German context, as is her experience. You might notice that she references a conference or New York and how we first met. And I wanted to point out before you get started and before you get confused that that conference she's referencing is the National Women's Martial Arts Federation Conference. And it was held in New York State in August of 2022. And what she is alluding to is the culmination of the evolution of this historically feminist federation which is now recognizing that it's more than just women who have been oppressed and we really need to look at lifting up folks who are lgbtq and also people of color in particular but all oppressed peoples i really hope you enjoy this storytelling episode and learn a lot from martina as i did Everybody, welcome to the Fight Back podcast. We have a wonderful episode in store for you all today. I am here with Martina Hildegard. Now, she is a queer intercultural international martial artist living in the US with family, her wife and pets, largely in New Mexico, a queer teacher, storyteller and communication consultant on the road again. They have a commitment to women, children, the oppressed, all beings, and the planet. Martina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. That was a big introduction, but I have so many parts that I would like to expand upon. So could you tell everyone a little bit more about you, especially as it relates to martial arts? Well, I I may start backwards because actually in preparation for the podcast, I took on the first 26 years, Mm -hmm. um, which is when I actually started teaching martial arts. And I have not been teaching martial arts in the last years, although I've been more than eager and willing and anxious. And unfortunately, in the United States, we usually have to have a job to finance our self-support. 
And for the last years, I have been a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually a trained academic with my black belt is in um, intercultural communication. But my teaching has always very much been based on what I learned in a very traditional Okinawan style. Um, I did Shorin-ru um, karate, very involved. in. once I realized what I was doing, I became very involved in studying the heritage and the lineage. And especially when I started working with weapons, um, have never been to Okinawa, although several of my teachers were and studied with the original master of our style and um, realized that the Okinawans were largely, uh, not to disparage anyone else or any other culture, but when people hear um, karate, they usually think of those uh, in Japan and mm -hmm. the samurai, et cetera, et cetera. And in Okinawa, they were very good to use the, the current day words. They had a great deal of fluidity as an island between Japan and China. So they picked up many of their skills um, between the occupation from both sides or literally a fisherman falling a sleep in his boat and waking up on the China mainland, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of the traditional weapons that we used in our style were based on farm implements. And that totally fascinated me. And I also had the opportunity with my very first group of, of students to explore the idea that weapons are not just part of traditional forms and meaningless um, because all of my first group of students were differently abled women, most of whom had motor disabilities. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a close friend of mine, and she'd had polio as a child, and since that's current again. But in this is all, I lived in Europe. I was born in Europe and lived there for, for a large part of my adult life. Um, they usually have the, the crutches, that you hold underneath, uh, they're not they're not underneath your shoulders. They're the ones that actually give you some stability, and you can hold them in your hand. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, are you understanding the difference? Yes, yes. Because okay, so you know, kind of what I'm talking about. And I knew that this woman was incredibly strong anyway. I mean, nobody could take her in arm wrestling. Mm -hmm. And we had been been good friends and wrestled around in different situations. So they had all gone off to the Netherlands to do a self-defense training workshop. And they came back to Berlin. I was living in Berlin. That's where I was born and somewhat raised. I'm a good German in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um they came back to Berlin and decided that they needed a permanent teacher. And I was really kind of a green belt with a very good sensei. That's a long story too. Um, and I started doing the exact same style when I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And um, Barb Christensen was, was my very first teacher. She wasn't the first teacher, but she was my my sensei originally in Michigan and I think that she had just gotten her black belt 
And that was before she established her school in Ann Arbor, because there are a lot of women who who know that school and have done martial arts training in um, Ann Arbor. And I talked to somebody at the conference we were at, and they shared a bow style that, that they had picked up and, and learned from her. But Barb was probably one of the first ones where I developed this fascination with Okinawan weapons. So here I am, a group of differently abled women have come back to Berlin and they've decided they need a self-defense martial arts teacher and call me up and say, we've decided you're going to be our self-defense teacher. <laughs> I was just like, whoa, excuse me. So um, talking to my sensei and he had gone through a process of, he was great guy, but kind of a traditional black belt who just got in his black belt we had blown him away because he had really never trained a group of women mm -hmm. so we'd put a group of women together who were all studying with him in the traditional style and doing forms but he was also a boxer so he made sure that we were not we were not solely karateka mm -hmm. he wanted us to be able to do mat work etc cetera, etc cetera. So when I told him that this group of differently abled women had, had come to me and said, oh, we want you to be our teacher, that I wasn't sure what that meant or how I was going to go about it, but he felt that I was up to the challenge and that I'm, I might as well, you know, get on with it. And I was his senior student and I kind of do, I'm not, I'm pretty anti-authoritarian, but when it comes to the traditional styles, I do have a tendency to be a good girl and, 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 you know, I always kind of think that if you're helping somebody who's falling off a cliff, it's, it's very good if somebody's got you by your suspenders or the back of your jeans, whatever, because I, I think that I prefer teaching when I also have a teacher in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other areas like that where I'm active, where I think, Mm, this is not a good time to give advice or, you know, to jump in the lake with somebody until you have somebody who can toss you the lifeline too. So, um, so anyway, I, I wound up long story, short point. I wound up in Berlin teaching a group of differently abled women and they all had motor disabilities and they all had very different motor disabilities. There was one woman who was blind and I don't believe that I was either prepared or that I was a very good teacher because it was much easier for me to work individually with all of the women who had the motor disabilities. And we did both basic self-defense, some mat work. I focus a lot on boxing and being prepared to not just, you know, do beautiful forms, but to also figure out um exactly what your space in the universe is and and how you can protect that but back to the weapons what i learned with them more than anything else is how many abilities they had mm -hmm. so for instance my friend who had drafted me who walked around i mean she was i mean she was older than i am and she had already walked around berlin for you know, 20 plus years on her, on, on, on her crutches. And if there was somebody parked, you know, 
in in a disability zone or something, she would just swing up her crutch and pound the top of the car. So, I mean, she didn't have any real, you know, hesitations about using her crutch. But once I discovered how, how closely re- related a crutch is to a tumfa and how if you can't kick, you can swing that crutch just about any any other way as long as you, you know, maintain your balance and stability. But for that year plus of teaching, I learned more from them than I believe they learned from me. But we also had we had a good time. Mm-hmm. And they were all radical lesbian feminists who <laughs> there was there were some really amazing scenes because at the time I was also working for the US Air Force. And at that time we're talking about approximately 84, 85, 86 in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Many places, unlike the States, didn't have any access. So finding a place where we could work out where you know wheelchairs and crutches and whatever else could be taken up the stairs so at some point i checked on the air force base where i was working if we could find a small room or a gym that they all had access to and um one of the one of the the young women at the time um who was very punk very radical and she didn't always like she was she was literally one-legged and she didn't always like to wear prosthesis. She thought it was, you know, unpassum because the German word, um, too much making other people happy. And she liked making other people uncomfortable. So I think she had pink hair, bright neon green dress, and she was swinging herself on one leg through the U.S. Air Force gate in order to come to the self-defense training. And that was definitely their spirit as well. They weren't ready to just kind of be good karateka it was either useful and they were getting something out of it or um we would have to find a different way to do it so we did go through forms i also had the senior student who i stayed in touch with on and off through the years and she was a woman who was um very short but she had it, it dwarfed small people, whatever the the English terminology is, but she had also lived a, a lifetime. I think she had had 17 operations before she was 17 years old. Wow. And most, most of them had really strong radical stories. And I mean, they didn't want me to just be the cool, able-bodied teacher. They taught me and showed me a lot about what what you need to know when you're living in any of their situations. So I got to practice wheelchair basketball with them and discover, you know, the wheelchair athletes who really can, you know, flip out of their their chairs and, you know, kick your butt in a, in a mat contest and stuff like that. And or, you know, um, get a rebound on your back and flip your chair back up and make the next shot. So I really do consider that probably one of the best martial arts teaching years of my life. That's so interesting how it's like the original strengths-based model, right? We talk about trying to teach through a strengths-based lens. And to me, it's like the polar opposite of being ableist is looking at someone and saying, 
your disability, this thing that you've lived your whole life with, not that we're going to sugarcoat it and gloss over it, but actually look how strong your arms are because of that or this different kind of balance that you um, developed or this type of mental toughness, whatever it might be, probably many things, right? And how can we leverage that in a way that makes you feel strong and empowered and protected, right? And it's also effective so so wonderful and to have been a fly on the wall in those classes I can picture it right I can picture it's like 80s Berlin very punk people are doing different kinds of versions of the technique has adapted for their bodies I love that well and I mean that's why it was also such a learning experience for me my senior student um, the woman I was just talking about her name was Eileen there was no way she was ever going to make a fist. So everything was open-handed with her, you know, at, at four foot, whatever, there was no way that she was ever going to be focusing on kicking. But the other thing that that did for me at the time, because I was also active in going to some of the European martial arts camps at the time where I got to know some of the uh, founding mothers Mm -hmm. um, was the whole thing that, both my sensei i mean my sensei taught forms and he said yeah i want to be able to do this when i'm 70 and that really stuck with me because at that time i was kind of off and on with stress and back problems so these women totally literally embodied for me the the idea that nobody is ever always going to be in perfect tune and shape Mm -hmm. and I I already knew so many young martial artists who would go to a sparring match wearing knee braces get out of the ring and put the ice on immediately and I was like hell no you know first of all I mean I I did not grow up in a friendly environment and it's like I took I will spar but like I've got my my helmet on and stuff like that because I've taken enough hits in one lifetime for anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after that, and, and I felt the same way with women. And, it, you know, fortunately, my sensei was also a boxer. So he said, <laughs> could tell some funny stories about that, too. He he set up a situation that until one of us punched him in the mouth, he was going to wear protective gear. So um, one of the other students who was a close friend of mine at work who had grown up in Detroit, um, she took it upon herself to be the first one she did. She gave him a bloody lip. And after that, he started wearing protective gear. But um, I was grateful that he made sure that we were not just doing everything within karate boundaries. And that if we were in a situation on the streets of Berlin, which were probably a lot safer than either Chicago or Detroit at the time, we were prepared and um yeah that that was a good feeling because you did you you know berlin was still mostly under control except for our protest but um we we did need need to have street smarts and street awareness definitely and i think that's a a concern that I hear often come especially from the LGBTQ community, right? We do not live in a hate-free world. So unfortunately, we do have to play defense, right? We do have to have the skills to be able to defend ourselves because not everybody out there is a supportive, wonderful person. 
True. Yep. And and I living in the states, I could go on about that one for another couple of hours. No, I'm 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 very concerned about about um yeah, my my whole life has has very much been dedicated to to social justice progress, you know. I yeah. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. I usually get myself assigned to security when I'm I'm at a protest or a rally or something because I mean that was something that second wave feminists and a lot of people back in the 70s and 80s I mean we learned from each other and we ne- learned about nonviolent protests mm-hmm. and you know what you know HIV AIDS um, all of that contributed a lot to the exchange of learning how it was okay to be rebellious to fight state authority berlin at that time we were not a lot of people don't realize that berlin was an occupied city we had you know four military um powers literally who i mean berlin was as occupied in the 1970s and 80s as baghdad was at one time it was all about the military so even in recent months, the idea of being surrounded by Russian tanks just really does not appeal to me, you know. And um, yeah, I grew up with my grandmother's stories about um, going through inflation in two world wars. And we were definitely at odds about, you know, I mean, she was she was not a Nazi, but there were very few German feminists of any persuasion who were not aware of of a horrible history so it's you know my mother's still alive she still has the same accent she had 60 years ago when she literally got off the boat but um she and i often talk about you know the rise of fascism and i'm totally grateful that at least now in mainstream american politics we're talking about Semi uh, semi fascists. I mean, I don't know what semi about them, in, unless they drive trucks. But um, the the rise of fascism and I mean, I grew up in small town America, so white supremacist, nationalist ideology. I mean, as a European, if you spend any time in the states or even with American forces or stuff, I mean, our affinity for flags and standing for the national anthem and you know doing different versions of yes or no sir and clicking our heels is is also pretty commonplace the Uh, mosquitoes are coming out oh i can only imagine (laughs) worth it though worth it though to be where you are and for those who are listening and not watching uh martina is in a wonderful forest with her chihuahuas and cat and ducks um it's all very very wholesome but I I'm curious about how all of those identities have influenced you as a martial artist in more recent years so being in America as a queer white feminist stepping into the martial arts space which apart from being very white um is not very queer not very aligned with feminism so how do you navigate those intersections well first of all um any place i am is queer as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. so um i spent the last 20 years 
getting out of the work that funded the rest of my life. And um, I went back to academia Mm -hmm. when I moved back to the States, first of all, completing an undergraduate degree that I dropped out of and then going on for master's and PhD. And I like to say, you know, at one point in my life, I was like, okay, it's either a black belt or a PhD. And it turned into the PhD, but from getting my my so-called American terminal degree at 50, I realized I was not going to have a brilliant, you know, um, career as, as a professor, et cetera. And I, because I enjoyed the classroom too much. Mm-hmm. And from the beginning, my teaching has pretty much always looked a lot like it did back in Berlin when I was in my 20s. Um, not necessarily with senior students and belts, but I think that one of the things the martial arts brought to me that I didn't have previously, not only structure, mm-hmm. um, because I, that's really Im- important to me because it was hard to find that on my own, but um, a gentleness, mm-hmm. you know, and just like I was mentioning about this, you know, adapting uh, the martial arts to to different uh, different bodies in different ways. You know, all of those women went on to study different forms of martial arts that most appealed to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was Bettina who it came without her prosthesis to the the Air Force base, and I think she went on to kind of go and train some kickboxing, you know, guy because she loved to be able to swing her leg, you know, uh off of the two crutches that she, that she balanced on, you know, and, and to totally learn how to navigate with without having two legs. So mm-hmm. each of those women kind of went to different forms that appealed to them more. And that's one of the things I've always, I haven't participated in as many American camps, but that's one of the things I used to love about the European camps is really seeing the different styles and how different women use them and with different abilities. And, you know, the, the, the camps that I went to back then were, were in the Netherlands and nobody is more politically correct than the Dutch. I don't care what you do, but the Dutch usually are about 30 steps ahead of the rest of us in terms of ableist and, you know, all of those kind of things. So um, how has it informed me? It's informed me mostly as a teacher. <clears throat> 20 years ago, I moved to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's a white minority in my New Mexico. Um, most people will relate to it as, oh, that's where, you know, hell, there are Americans who don't even know that New Mexico is one of the 50 states. I got to experience that again in the, in the, the last couple of weeks or months. But um, nonetheless, it's um, people immediately associate it with Mexico and have no conception of history or understand that it was, you know, where the Mexican, the Hispanic, the Spanish conquistadors came up through Mexico looking for the great gold cities. And, you know, not only as colonial explorers, but I think what a lot of people don't realize either is all of the Spanish conquistadors did not bring, you know, wives, uh, sisters or daughters. So there was no question that um, it was it was an abusive colonial relationship Mm -hmm. 
but many of the people who live there will trace their family back, you know, 12 or 15 generations. So it's not some recent, you know, in, invasion of the South by Mexicans who want a better life. It's, I mean, the Southwest is truly a culture of its own. So you do have the, the Hispanic populations, and I've lived in Southern New Mexico and along the border for part of the time in New Mexico, but in the last five to seven years, I've been in Northern New Mexico and specifically earning my living as a public school teacher. And then in the last year, I was at a small private school that was directly connected with Navajo Nation. And when I, I spoke recently at the conference about invisible populations, um, I can't even begin. I mean, there are books about all of the mythology about Native Americans that still exist to this day. But I think probably the biggest one and the one that I'm most susceptible to as well is that all the Indians died or they're no longer, you know, part of our our um, landscape. And there is a very large and active Native American population. And to talk about Native Americans, I know in Canada they, they talk about First Nations. But to talk about Native Americans is kind of like talking about either Asians um, or, or Latin Hispanic people, we're talking about tribes and nations, you know, that span both continents that had civilizations that were equivalent to Paris, London and Rome, you know, at, at, at the times kind of thing. So I have had both the, um, privilege, bad word, but appropriate of being a white teacher with Native American kids, but also seeing <clears throat> the invisibility and the very unique identities that they have, you know, in this land of so-called equal opportunity and the just and the free. And they themselves are struggling with um, because they they have very old cultural historical relationships with people who they called two spirited. They mm -hmm. they didn't have to affirm <coughs> people's gender. Not that it wasn't still a struggle, um, and you know, not totally e easily accepted. But for instance, the Navajo Nation has has not a. a passed uh, marriage law and it's partially because they are very influenced by two major religious dominations not uh, denominations that have had a great deal of influence on the nation although the nation prides itself on being very um, sovereign independent and wanting to hold on to its own language and culture mm. and nonetheless some of and and it's actually it's it's a very touchy subject but the religious differences that have sprung up in the last years have definitely had a, a huge impact and influence and the fact that there are 
Navajo who want to go back because many of the Navajo don't want to be out in the world and getting, you know, their degrees and their honors. They would they want to bring it home to the to the reservation. And, you know, doctors and social workers and teachers who go back home. Um, whose partner no longer has health insurance or things like that. So the last job I had part of the deal was that, that my spouse was insured and just as at the public school level, I was certainly there for the LGBTQ kids, um, but it was hard and painful to me that that the LGBTQ questions were as under the cover as they had been in public education with administration afraid of parents and kids. I really came out of out of my my last 20 years of, of education going, I don't know how much has changed in the last 40 years since I attended American public school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always been, um, you know, while I've been teaching at the high school level, I've been out and I've always been open. But I mean, just the idea of having to walk on eggshells because kids, kids, parents, um, may you know the kid may or may not want to come out to their parents mm-hmm. and and how to create safe spaces mm-hmm. are as important today as they were 40 years ago mm-hmm. and that makes me sad mm-hmm. you know because i went to a, i i was out at well not to my classmates or my parents but you know i dated every gay boy in high school and more or less you know knew uh, how difficult the search was and stuff like that so I just think it's sad that while we have our videos and our TikTok that promises that things do get better, we we still have the homeless LGBTQ youth and um, the ones who are getting thrown out of their homes and the ones, you know, we have 10% higher alcoholism addiction rates, much higher suicide rates. And in the Native American community, there is nothing that they're more worried about than, than suicide, both in Alaska and um, New Mexico, the suicide rates among the indigenous populations are much higher than among youth around the country, which is way too high. And the last two years of COVID have, of course, been horrible. So, so come on, get me into some questions mm-hmm. about interoception, because I really think that's a part of everything we're talking about. Um, yes. You know, your original question had to do, you know, martial arts, how, you know, I started writing four weeks ago and and had one good day of writing that got me up till 26 on how it saved my life. But um, I call everybody under 40 a kid these days. I just had my birthday this past weekend, by the way. So this is a perfect cap off to my birthday weekend. (laughs) Um, But. I was definitely a kid who had not learned how to inhabit my own body. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you, you're familiar with the work of, of Stephen Levine, who's um, pretty, pretty, he lived in New Mexico. He's since passed, but he very powerful proponent of um, 
Buddhist meditation and things like that. And he described a, a session that he held where he was going to uh, tell everybody how to have out-of-the-body experiences. And a group of women approached him over lunch and they said, oh, I've had enough out-of-body experiences. I'd really like to have an experience in my body. Mm. And that has stayed with me ever since in terms of that for women and, and other oppressed people who live in hypervigilant um, environments and, and, and well, for whatever reason you have grown up with or you know what it means to to be hypervigilant, that doesn't mean that you're, you're necessarily in touch with your body. Mm-hmm. And one of the most powerful things I'll, I do do a lot of slogans. I am sober and clean, by the way. Mm-hmm. So one of the most powerful, you know, thoughts that I ever heard was that feelings are not a four-letter word. It's not love. It's not hate. It's not something you describe with your head. Mm-hmm. A feeling is what is your gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, it's easy to say that, but I would say that it probably took me two years of sobriety mm-hmm. to understand what I was truly feeling in the world you know, in terms of my gut feeling and my reaction to it. And my first feeling was, um, oh, I think I could throw up. This really disgusts me, you know, kind of thing. And I think that's probably one of the feelings that I really wanted to numb myself out from. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll never forget as an alcoholic telling my story with a group of bulimics who all looked at me and wondered if I was in the right place or not. Um, because a lot of my alcoholism was directly connected to I would put it down and it would come straight back up and that was part of what I wanted Mm -hmm. was this feeling of make it all go away and you know deaden the sensations and all of those kind of things so it really has only dawned on me and maybe just in this conversation how much doing any kind of breathing exercises or communication things and of course, moving towards the whole idea of giving voice is inviting students and asking them to center themselves in themselves mm-hmm. and to see what they're feeling, but what they're really feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I talk much like I do now. You know, what are you feeling? Don't tell me what you're thinking. You know, what are you feeling? You know, is that comfortable? Is it not comfortable? And all those kind of things. But also recognizing, you know, if a teacher would have done that with me when I was in high school, I, you know, I probably would have looked at them like they were crazy. Although I had a close friend who was a teacher who was a yoga instructor, and she probably gave me some of the most important lessons that I took out in life because she also cared about what I was feeling about stuff. But in high school, you can't escape it, you know, at least not if you're living at home. So, um, I think it took me another couple of years to actually have a sense. And and that would be the fundamental answer to, you know, how did the martial arts save my life? Because for the first time I was located in my body. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I have an overactive mind. Um, Like to be an intellectual, that's not popular in the States either. And it was the only time in the week when I had a blank screen, I wasn't thinking about what did I do yesterday? 
what am I going to schedule? How am I going to fit in the Zoom podcast, et cetera, et cetera? I was present. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such an amazing experience for so many people. What does yes. it feel like to be present and to to even stay with discomfort? You know, because I don't like to be around when things aren't fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, you know, I love my woods, but, you know, I can zone out with a with a good, you know, stupid video game on my iPad. Um, I'm a bit of a news junkie, so I have a tendency to, you know, listen to too many of the bad things that are happening as, as we do move into a world that is uh, even less friendly than it was previously. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah and you know i love women as much as i had a whole second wave feminist history i came out with the gay boys and they do know how to have fun and our communities integrated a whole lot more during the scourge of the 1980s i mean that's also another place where we learned a whole lot about how closely and tightly interconnected are all of our worlds were and are how much you know isolation and exclusion damages us and um the other part of all of this story that informs me um i really don't like guns mm -hmm. and i have a really long history um because my my father's family were hunters i grew up i can impress my students with with good hunting jokes um they usually involve drinking though so but the point is that the school shootings in the states are outrageous mm -hmm. and the teachers are terrified mm -hmm. and i've got to tell you i started this summer just barely starting to get in touch with how much PTSD I had I had from teaching in the public school system. Mm -hmm. When the Uvalde shooting happened, I was beyond numb. Mm -hmm. You know, six years ago when I was in this part of the country, um, I was working with my gay cousin here in town mm -hmm. when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. And that's not the way I want to check out. And I mean, I have to say that my dad's spirit comes back to me that, you know, if if the mantra or the motto is it's run, hide, fight. If I've got, you know, two drops left in me, I'm going to have the nearest broomstick and use it in the best battering fashion I know how. And, you know, when Americans talk about arming teachers, I'm like, is there anything else you would like us to do? I mean... American education is broken. We have been dumbing people down for 40 years. So, yes, I have a very unique teaching style. I am definitely, you know, uh, because I also won't shut up. So I believe in storytelling. I like storytelling. I love storytelling. And I think really there's no way in the world that we live in now or in any world but it's almost just becoming so in your face now that it's hard to ignore the way that all of our different stories intersect and interrelate and impact us so you know as we think about 
for example, many martial arts teachers listen to this podcast. I'm not sure about secondary and, and other school teachers, but possibly, but certainly martial arts teachers, right? And we think about the people who come through our doors and step on the mat or whatever the format might be. And if throughout the story we've spoken about, how likely is it that there are students who are impacted by gun violence, by violence, by oppression, right? Are your students handling or navigating these different intersections, their sexuality, their gender, their race, their community, where do they fit, where do they not fit? I think we have a great risk and a great opportunity in being perhaps one space that is slightly more, I say slightly more because there's always going to be parental pressures in dojos as well, but we have a slightly we have an opportunity to be a space where it's the safe space for the kid or for the human, the adult, it doesn't matter, but we have the opportunity to create communities where people feel that they belong, that they are seen. Um, and also, as you spoke about, that they can practice this interoception, right? Well, and to move beyond the martial arts teachers, I think that one of, you know, i I've known many martial artists who set up schools and or, you know, in the last two years, uh, the the whole Zoom thing, um, which, you know, I'm 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 fine with. I spent 20 years in computers and marketing, but that doesn't mean I'm always good at what the kids could do. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact of the matter is, um, at least in the States, I know other countries, there is different training and different things but we really need to be reaching out to teachers and Mm -hmm. we really need to be reaching out to older people because I really, I mean, the States has spent the last two years. I mean, you know, in American politics right now, teachers are accused of being groomers and pedophiles. And I realize that, that martial arts teachers, especially women, you know, face some of the same challenges but I mean, American teachers have been battered for the last, yeah, I mean, since since the Reagan era. era um, it, yeah, I mean, we stopped teaching principles that used to be, you know, I, I know it was like American exceptionalism. I know that the history still wasn't, you know, a real, you know, that the American dream was not real for people who didn't have the privilege. But teachers have tried to uphold some kind of values not all of them of course Mm -hmm. um but i think that just like everybody else in the last two years who's been on the front lines doing the work i mean it's not only what kids do have that are coming in from domestic violence and alcoholism and drug addiction i mean one of the first public schools i interviewed at i asked them you know from my background um so do you have any problems with the kids and, and alcoholism and addiction? They said, no, but we worry a lot about the parents. We have more problems there. You know, and that totally also changed my mindset in terms of the fact how many teachers are, you know, the first resort, and I have been now for the last five years, the first resort for kids whose whole background is, you know, they don't have a, a, a stable home life. They are terribly unhappy. Um, and, you know, one of the things I also was able to talk about in New York was the fact that I think it's, say, I think we need to keep LGBTQ 
cue because it used to be fine to say queer and questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't know a teenager of any persuasion anywhere in the world who isn't somewhere somehow questioning their sexuality. I mean, that's what teenagers are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You know, what, whatever, you know, I mean, that's what the hormones are there for, you know, kind of thing. And if they don't have a safe place where they can question, um, it's a sad state of affairs. That's the n- nicest thing I will say. So, I mean, I definitely believe in youth, youth outreach, but I also think we need to find better ways of supporting each other. Not only our, our you know, our founding mothers slowly leaving us and moving into retirement and bliss in the woods and all that kind of stuff, but we're not learning many of their lessons. And, you know, one of the most important things that got brought up in New York was this thing of outreach. How do we do outreach? Not as a great white, you know, colonial savior, but how do we do outreach to people who need what we have to offer, um, but might not know how to access it um, in a whole lot of different ways. And I don't just mean being able to pay for it, getting parents, you know, to agree or accept it. How do we say this, this really, this really does mean you, this really is inclusive of you, you know, whatever situation, teenagers, like I say, I think there are a lot of things teenagers are designed for and conflict is one of them. And, you know, um, rebellion is also one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's funny. I was I was talking to, to somebody who I like and admire, and they were saying, "Well, you know, in a in a dojo, you just kind of it's very authoritarian. You learn how to say yes or no, sir." And I was like, "No, not me. I mean, I definitely came from the '60s generation of question authority and admired all my older, you know, college students who had really lived through that era and stuff, but." Um, most of the founding mothers of the the martial arts lineage that that I recognize in the states were willing. I mean, they had rebelled themselves against men's schools, you know. So I'm not going to say that that all of them weren't weren't white and privileged and might not have included as much or as many um, forms or not been harsh or tough at, at different times. But I will say that these are battles that that we did go through 40 years ago. I mean, when I moved to Berlin, Audre Lorde was was working in Berlin, Mm -hmm. um, teaching Germans poetry, which is an amazing process because Germans as as a group are not necessarily in, in, um, in deep touch with their feelings, not something that we're necessarily well known for. And I mean, she was amazing in how she questioned and challenged as a teacher. And, um, and she was also very funny. Um, but what she, she asked of students is not that they adopt her identity, but how could they get more deeply in touch with their own, even if it was totally painful. You know, and 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 that's one of the benefits of being a, a German. 
you you must realize at some point in your life if you do anything with your your ancestors or your heritage that you have a deeply painful identity mm -hmm. i mean seriously and um you know as i said earlier my grandmother went through world inflation world war one and world war two and went through world war two as a single mother um was she a good german she didn't work actively in the resistance nor was she a nazi but I teach the Holocaust and she was firmly convinced when I was 16, I was gonna become a communist, which I thought was really boring. And Emma Goldman is much more my hero. But um, at some point you have to get in touch with the painful parts of your identity. And we all have privilege somewhere. Um, many of us are, are related. You know, Alice Walker wrote, um, I've learned I've 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 learned how to forgive the 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 rapists in my lineage, you know, kind kind of thing because she realized you know how many how much rape there was in slaveholding mm -hmm. populations and I mean that's become more and more, and if you talk about that somewhere openly you know today in the United States you're accused of teaching you know CRT um, critical race theory and it's like oh give me a break most people in this country don't even realize what critical race theory is. You know, teaching teaching the Holocaust. Um, I looked my principal in the face and I said, "There are not two views on this." You know, let's not even go there. I I I can't. You know, give you the good version mm -hmm. of how you know all the Nazis were mean and bad and stuff like that. And and so back to the the whole questions of youth and identity and old people in identity. I mean, our identity has to be as fluid as anything else in our lives. I mean, there's definitely music that I don't like. I, I can't, you know, on the weekends here at the gay campground, I there's this rave beat that I just think, you know, thank God I can't hear the lyrics. And then I hear the lyrics and I'm like, no, I didn't miss anything. But, you know, my kids think I'm an old hippie and I prefer disco. Um, and rhythm and blues and soul. I grew up outside of Detroit, Motor City. We've got a good black sound. Um, but if we don't, you know, the people who I trust most in the world have crossed between many worlds. Mm -hmm. We've lived in different places. We have, we have, you know, and it's not fragments that, that create a whole. We have, we, we know how to put on different glasses and different lenses. We've lived in different places where we have been privileged to look into each other's lives and experience and discomfort, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I don't want to get into any more little slogans, but, you know, we enter the world usually kicking and screaming and... Um, I've had a lot of loss in the last two years mm -hmm. and, and I respect death and aging as much as I do birth. Mm -hmm. And um, as you get, aging is not for the faint of heart. As you get older and the knees start to twinge doing things that you, you used to be able to do easily and without, you know, thinking about it. I, I've always felt, at least in the lesbian community that we do not reach out enough mm -hmm. to you know our mothers and our grandmothers who who 
plowed the ground before us mm-hmm. you know and i don't know how true that is in different communities i you know love to hear you say something about you know whether uh, how many older women on, in aussie land or any place else you're interviewing because i think we forget that our mothers and our grandmothers and our sisters also face these these same struggles that Yes, everybody has to fight them for themselves in their own ways. But, oh, my God, did we have discussions about about inclusion and diversity mm-hmm. 20 or 40 years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, how were we going? You know, I, I mean, I've definitely been in situations where white or non-Jewish women were not welcome. Mm-hmm. And I've been like, OK, I understand. Thank you. You know, kind of thing. Um, the the differently abled women at some point were like, okay, that's good. Now we have to go on fighting for identity and you're never going to be part of our world until maybe you get handicapped and or old, mm-hmm. you know, and and told me what their limits were. And, you know, unless you can stay open to hearing those boundaries. I mean, I love to be a proponent of hope. And with my students, I love to flip that switch and, you know, go in bright and cheery and, and maintain that that thing of there is hope in the world, even if it looks really dark and you're struggling and you feel like you're never going to get out of this place or things like that. But I, I think we also have to hear where people say, you know, I can't I can't break down that wall right now. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't stay in this discomfort any longer. Um, you know, it, yeah. Um, there there are there are so many forms of microaggressions and not understanding. You know, I still misgender all the time, and um, yeah. But I also figured out a lot of things. Totally. I think something, I think it was Adrian Marie Brown who said, um, you know, that it feels right now like we're going through the most pain that's ever lived in the world and we're challenging the most things and we're doing the most work, but maybe our, our sisters, brothers, siblings before us felt the same thing. And it just doesn't seem that way to us because we're living it right now. And right now it feels like it's, it's everything and it's so, so painful, but these are, these are battles that have been happening for forever and we can feel that in our history too as much as we can feel the trauma we can feel the fight and the you know activism and the political organizing and the resistance um and the wonderful parts of that too this is a this is a i think battle and that many many battles too that have been happening for generations and will continue to happen for generations and it's really about how we can look after ourselves and each other as we navigate this time and make the world hopefully slightly better, you know, or somebody's world hopefully slightly better by some and, by some percentage. And right? recognizing all the different forms of survivorship. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I strongly identify with as, as not only a German-American, but truly as a German, 
mm. is the idea that I know that a lot of my trauma comes from the fact that my mom was literally born into World War II, mm -hmm. that no matter what, she grew up in a city just like London that had bombs falling on it. Mm -hmm. And I've watched my mom for 60 years as different war scenes come on. And she's also my, my original sponsoring news junkie and stuff. You know, she's never looked away from, from um, the American things we were doing, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. And, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of grew, grew up with, with those visions. And I've often related over the course of my life to different veterans and had mm -hmm. them as students and things like that. And um, as much as I can hate the military or I can hate, you know, the, the German war machine to realize that any city in this world, when the bombs are falling, those are women and children mm -hmm. who are fighting for their lives. I mean, um, I think it's unfortunate that we don't recognize that Central America is going through the same terror as Ukraine, and that as Americans, we're much more comfortable supporting Ukraine than the immigrants at the southern border, mm -hmm. um, because they're not white and they don't look like us and want to be good European immigrants. But somewhere to just recognize the struggle of any, you know, and especially, you know, and something the kids already have anxiety about, and we don't enough, you know, recognize that climate change it's probably going to make a lot of us refugees one place or another, you know, and, and I guess that gets, gets, if you're looking for a wrap up point, I can, I haven't watched my time at all, but you know, the commitment to the planet. Um, yeah. If we don't look at the big picture, we don't have the individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that is a good point to probably end on and to have people just maybe thinking if there was a takeaway um, from this conversation, I think my takeaway from this conversation would be to think about maybe who I don't check on enough, you know, and to maybe reach out to somebody. I know we all probably concentrate our efforts in one direction, right? In what's proximal, what's in our faces, what we see. So maybe for you, that's children because you have children or your students or, or maybe there's, you know, you need to start checking in on anybody, but most likely you're checking in on somebody already. If you listen to this podcast, so who are you maybe not thinking about as we're all going through the struggle of living in a world that's really living with a lot of pain, but then realizing at the same time, I think that by doing these small acts of kindness, like reaching out, like, you know, teaching someone a breathing technique or helping them feel their body as they training martial arts in your class, that those small wins are not small. They're very significant in the context of all the difficulty that we navigate. Well, one of the things that, that, that you taught me, I mean, you brought back a lot of my old teaching, but one of the things I have to remind myself always, you know, I've spent half my life on, on airplanes, good, bad, or indifferent. You've always got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you hand it to the person next to you. Mm -hmm. So if we don't do some form of self-care and checking in with our own bodies and our own health in the biggest sense of the word, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, mm -hmm. um, we can't, keep doing the good work or the good fight because Absolutely. we do have to 
put that oxygen mask on every now and then. Absolutely, 100%. And I think in doing so, it's not just the act of putting the oxygen mask on and then you're able to help other people. The analogy almost needs to extend further in that in putting your oxygen mask on, you inherently help other people. And changing your world changes the world. I like that. It's Is fun. It- I want to I want to talk with you again for a longer period of time where we can just talk because I do want to hear more and I will listen um, to your podcast too. It's, it's, it's inspired me to, to listen. Well, I do listen to more than just my, my daily news quantum, but, um, I, I think that there, see one, one of the other things about the martial arts that it brought into my, into my life was, was the healing arts, because Mm -hmm. I have not known many martial artists who, didn't become deeply involved with healing Mm -hmm. their own lives in one form or another. So I would, and, and, and working with others, I mean that, yeah, I think that's as important. Um, And so therefore I, I really do think of the martial art and it's a universal, there are very few cultures that don't have, you know, a martial art just as almost all of the cultures have, have healing arts. So I think it's really important to recommend that it's not only about if you break it, fix it, but also the idea of, you know, what can we do to be gentle proponents mm-hmm. in in a world? Because all of the martial arts invariably, you know, whether it's it's Tai Chi or, or Shotokan Karate, have, have very gentle healing sides. Mm-hmm. And... Um, to study them as deeply as we do our knuckle push-ups and uh uh you know working working on getting those legs higher and stuff like that absolutely martino is there any way people can contact you if they have follow-up questions sure um i i'm i'm on facebook mm-hmm. um and on facebook i'm there as martina Heldgard. um I used to keep up an info page, um, but I would welcome anybody to contact me through Facebook. Um, trying to think uh, because I'm I I spent two hours cleaning up my email right before I got on today because I was looking for all the various passwords to get onto Zoom and my Google accounts and blah 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 blah. So I would say that right now Facebook is probably the best bet. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, if you really want to hear something from me and if you contact me on Facebook, I'm, I'm happy to give e- either my phone number and working email that I'll actually look at this week and stuff like that. Awesome. We'll put all those details in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll certainly have more conversations in the future. I hope so, because I really do want to hear more about you. <laughs> have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus.
nobody shapes me but me. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Too many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience, meets power, meets gracious, meets. We're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers, cause I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much, I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me. Cause I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be. The positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forget that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh? Oh.